Sawabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. Today we're going to look at the third most planted white grape variety in South Africa, Sauvignon Blanc. There are 9,654 hectares planted, and it's immensely popular with South African wine drinkers. We'll start with a look at the early days of Sauvignon Blanc in South Africa and how winemakers sought out some of the cool climate areas that are most associated with the grape today. Let's meet one of those leaders. I'm the proprietor of a, a winery called Neil Ellis Wines. The winery's positioned in Stellenbosch. But in terms of, let's call it a working concept, we are probably the first winery, or let's say I was the first winemaker who looked wider than purely a single piece of land. And this started in the mid-80s, where I ventured into other regions, looking and identifying sites that I believed would be suitable for the varieties I'd like to work with. And that gave me that sort of environment and they call it the terroir in which I felt the varieties would excel in. So that's in a nutshell what we do. We have a barrel fermented version of Sauvignon Amikai, and that is a particular vineyard in the Yonkers Hook Valley that yields really attractive fruit. Stylistically, it's totally different. It's fermented in larger format oak, wild ferment, and essentially what we're aiming at there is a wine that talks about texture and mouthfeel. The varietal expression is not the driving point. So what we're talking about is essentially a food wine. Amika is something that is very dear to me because it's that style of wine that really just gets better in time and just becomes more accessible, more enjoyable and develops a lot of complexity on palates. If we look at Krunekloof, in terms of its winemaking, it's just as basic as one gets, but it's a particular site that offers a particular result, and the vineyard is only that big, so, you know, it's not that you can add to that in dramatic ways, but really what we aim at there is to make a wine that is the best that we believe that particular site gives, and we'd rather look for a market. We've been very fortunate with that in that form. It still tends to be a bit of a benchmark in terms of what that region does. And I've never, ever said it will be the best in the country, but it's always one of the best. But that, again, in the context of this tremendous diversity that we can offer in Sauvignon and to my mind, there's very few countries probably that can offer this diversity of style at the applicable price points that offer tremendous value on international markets. Sincerely is the departure point. That is, I don't want to call it entry level or the second label, but there's always a need for a really good glass of wine. And although, if we look at what we're doing in terms of Amica, which is the barrel fermented version, and Krunekruf sincerely just offers us an option to be sourcing from a wider base, to be looking at complementary components suited to the particular style. And as I say, that is about the enjoyment and also made to a price point that's very competitive. If we go back early recollections, not that I was around then, but I know that a cooperative like Simon's Flay, one of their winemakers said they found the grape reception book, an old one of 1924. And there they made mention of harvesting 400 tons of Sommeo Blanc. Now, let that be, but certainly that variety wouldn't have worked for that time because it wouldn't have given the kind of yields that people needed. You must remember it was also long before coal fermentation became order of the day, so I wouldn't even want to think what the ultimate wine looked like. 
but it's a variety that I think when it comes to the earlier plantings, probably in the 60s and 70s, there might have been some plantings in areas like Stellenbosch, but what it was used for, nobody knows. If memory serves me, there was probably, it might even have been a winery like Baxberg or Simonsen that could have been arguably the first to do it, but I don't think it was that important in their lives. I think Sauvignon and certainly the better ones capture the imagination of the consumer because all of a sudden there was something that had a lot of varietal expression that was really fresh, was pungent, they were just very different. And I had early day experience with Sauvignon in my tenure at Fruit Constantia, which arguably was also one of the early properties who planted. And uh, I was lucky enough to be the first winemaker to make wine from it, and that was in 1982. You must remember in those days we still had, as part of the wine of origin certification system, wines that were certified as superior. That was the old gold sticker. And that very first Constantia wine ended up being a superior and I think demanded a premium at the Niederberg auction a few years later. So it also tended to keep quite well. After that, in 1986, Klein Constantia had bottled their very first one and that wine is even to this day a legend and that wine was made by the late Ross Gower who in fact came from Niederburg and also had spent time in New Zealand so I think he had a very nice touch with Sauvignon. Sauvignon I think because of its particular appeal it was very different at that time if grown in the right conditions tended to give wines that were very aromatic, very flavorful, but equally so at the same time, if planted in the wrong environment, was the opposite. And I think today there's still some of that, but a lot less. And this was long before we started to realize the importance of cooler growing sites. An area like Constantia was substantially later than most. So when I stood out on my own and looked for sites that I think would express the sort of fruit that I needed, we bottled the first wine being a Sauvignon Blanc, which we could certify wine of origin Belgian in 1990. And I also did the first Chardonnay in that area. So we established a vineyard and First bottling took place in 94, and it's really those two varieties that I looked at in an area like Elgin because I believed the region gave me, or that particular ward as it was then, would have given me the diversity of site and the diversity of topography, location, and obviously, even to this day, there are still two dominating soil types, one being Bookerfeld Trail and the other one being Sandstone and Quartzite and I personally still prefer my wines coming from the Sandstone and Quartzite soils because they tend to hold a lot more elegance, they're a lot more finessed, they have a minerality about them that is particularly attractive. I think the beauty about the shale soils in that area are very good for aromatic varieties because it can express themselves in a very dramatic way. But that's not who I am. That's not who we are in terms of our style. Neil was the first to make wines from Elgin, but now the area is home to a number of wineries, some of which we heard from in our last episode. While we have other regions to explore, let's take a moment to look at Elgin specifically through the lens of Sauvignon Blanc. My name is James Darns, co-owner of Shannon Vineyards in the Elgin Valley in South Africa. I co-own the, the farm with my brother, Stuart Darns. We are what we refer to as a premium family boutique wine operation. So family business, boutique as in literally 12 hectares, very small production. We have been in the Elgin Valley all our lives, born and bred. 
Stuart did a stint in Chile for 17 years and came back in 2013. I came back from Scotland in 1999 and started planting vineyards in 2000. So this is my 21st vintage on the farm. And I've basically, from planting, trained the vines and worked the vines all the way through. And we make a Sauvignon Blanc SMEO, a new release Chardonnay. We literally bottled that at the beginning of the year and labeled it up. It's now really on the market. Very exciting. We have a Pinot Noir and a Merlot as well. So just the six varieties now on the farm. In, in South Africa and for the rest of the world, we trade under Shannon Vineyards. And that comes from our Irish heritage. But in the USA, there's a, another wine business with Shannon in their branding. So in the USA, we trade under Downs family. But what's very important is the sub-branding is all the same. So our Sanctuary Peak Sauvignon Blanc in South Africa, it's Shannon Vineyard's Sanctuary Peak Sauvignon Blanc. And in America, it's Downs family Sanctuary Peak Sauvignon Blanc. So the, the sub-branding is consistent all the way through for the different varietal wines. Firstly, talking about Elgin from a terroir perspective, where we fit in the bigger picture in South Africa, is we regard it as the coolest climate in the South African wine regions and the coolest growing conditions, so more similar to New Zealand than the other regions. Elgin, from a terroir perspective, what's unique about Elgin is altitudes. Our lowest vineyards are 260 meters above sea level, going up to 415 meters above sea level. And with every 100 meters, general rule of thumb, you can delay ripening by a week to 10 days. So probably our first picks in an average season would be third week of February. And the last pick would come in from our highest vineyards as late as sometimes the last week of March. Our closest vineyards are four and a half kilometers from the cold Atlantic Ocean the central HQ of Elgin, which is a farm store we all have coffee after dropping our kids off from school, is about 12 and a half kilometers from the ocean. So our furthest vineyards are about 22 kilometers from the ocean. So we've got altitude and proximity to the ocean. And of course, the ocean in our area is the cold Atlantic with the currents coming up from the Antarctic. We also have a phenomenon called the Black Southeaster. It's a summer wind that picks up at about 10 o'clock in the morning. And it brings with it a mantle of cloud cover over the Elgin region. And still to be confirmed, but it's being investigated at the moment. We may be the wine region with the highest number of cloud cover days during the harvest period or leading up to harvest. And again, that just is conducive to a softer growing environment, no stress. It's a more relaxed, gradual ripening phase tempo in the vine. So basically our vines ripen in third gear as opposed to fifth gear. We have two major soil types in the area, Teb Mountain Sandstone and the Cobalt Shale, which give opportunities to plant Sauvignon Blanc for different outcomes. And we normally find with the sand-based soils, it gives us a very good aromatic lift to the wine. It's a more vibrant, higher acid style of Sauvignon Blanc. And then your shales, those are more heavily structured soils. You can let the grapes hang a bit longer you'll have less stress with those vines because the soils won't dry out as quick as the sandstones. So you can go for slightly riper subtropical flavors, try irk out a bit more structure in the wines. Sauvignon Blanc is a varietal that likes to have a large canopy, likes to not be stressed in terms of any kind of water stress. So we have an abundant rainfall during the winter months and some rainfall during the summer months. Because we call it climate, it's a softer ripening environment and we get good healthy vibrant sunburn canopies obviously 20 years ago the grassy green style was very popular and higher levels of pyrazine we now look for more thiols in our wines and basically trying to manipulate the canopy so we don't have those grassy green characteristics and we use viticultural techniques to, to create the flavor profiles so it's just a matter of leaf packing and more bunch exposure. Sauvignon Blanc flavors, even though one talks of riper flavors, they're still of very delicate flavors. So you don't want an environment where you have lots of heat, which potentially can bake the flavors. It's also a varietal that tends to be quite a heavy bearer. So if you're sitting at 10 tons 
up to 15 tons a hectare in your hotter regions where you might have higher heat stress, you will get forced ripening conditions, which obviously won't lead to premium style of wines. In your warmer regions in South Africa where you do have some Sauvignon Blanc, what one tends to find is the grapes are picked earlier to retain the freshness, which is basically meaning they're wanting to retain natural acidity and low pHs. So those style of wines from a ripening perspective, they're picked at the beginning stages of the ripening where you have greener flavors. In Elgin, because we have the softer, more temperate grain conditions because of the cool climate, we get this extra hang time, which means we can actually pick and manage our Sauvignon Blanc to obtain a bigger spectrum of flavor profiles, which gives us the uniqueness in our wines. We can choose to pick early, but obviously we would have very high acidities in our wines. We can choose to have a second pick and even a third pick based on the style of Sauvignon Blanc we're looking for. But we generally tend to fit in a flavor spectrum between the greener pyrazines and then from a viticulture perspective, flavor profiles that for me are slightly on the overripe side, which would be more of your melon, talk about guava sometimes. Typically, Elgin Sauvignon Blanc would be what we refer to as subtropical. So that's your lychee, your granadilla, hence of black currant on the aromatic and on the palate, which is more unique to an Elgin style. I think the majority of Sauvignon Blanc in your classic Cinemosh region would be last week, Jan, first week, Feb. I think the big thing is that a lot of our producers have small hectares of Sauvignon Blanc. Even though it has the highest hectares planted in the valley, basically all the producers have Sauvignon Blanc. But still, our hectares per producer are very low. There are only a handful that have what would be regarded as big commercial hectares. From an album perspective, because we're not producing huge volumes of Sauvignon Blanc, we can really push the envelope in terms of a more premium white wine offering which happens to be a Sauvignon Blanc. A lot of our wines, because they have great aging potential, don't have the requirement of having to sell within 12 months. Some of our Sauvignon Blancs, depending on the vintage, actually come into the prime when they're about 18 months in bottle, even older. We went back to tasting 2012, 2013, 2015 Sauvignon Blanc recently, and they're absolutely gorgeous. We find that the Elgin Sauvignon Blancs have a huge amount of success internationally because there is a little bit more to the wine than just being a straightforward quaffing style of savvy. Because it is more subtropical, there's more layers to the aromatics, there's more layers to the flavor profile. We're not going to have time to look at every region in South Africa where Sauvignon Blanc has made a name for itself in detail. We're not going to have time to look in detail at every region in South Africa where Sauvignon Blanc has made a name for itself, but let's take a peek at a couple more. While Elgin is down the coast from Cape Town, Neil Ellis also explored up the West Coast and found another promising outpost for the grape. I also started looking at Darling because of its proximity to the Atlantic Ocean, and I had a very dear friend there who, like most of the farms at the time, and maybe still even some to this day, practiced very mixed farming. So you would typically in those days have found farmers they would have had some wheat, they would have had some grapes, they would have also had cattle, some of them even had dairies, and some sheep. It just helped them to get through a year. But in terms of grapes, what most people were planting on the easier side, so that was on the flatland, myself and my friends said we got to do this in another way. So we ventured into the hill sites that might have, in terms of equipment and so forth in those days, posed different challenges. But the important thing was that we got up into these really cooler sites. So, I mean, where we positioned, we had vineyards mainly on south-facing and aspects and southeast-facing. We also purposely kept them as bush vines. The reason that I felt I would rather have a bush vine there is that bush vines tended to yield within the same vine the magnitude of aromas and flavors. Now you can understand that if you've got a trellis vineyard, it's mono-driven. So it's gonna be one result. If you look at a bush vine, 
you've got very shaded bunches. You've got bunches that are exposed to dappled light. And then you've got exposed bunches, and that gives you that varying degree of aromatics and flavors. But the beauty of that region, too, although there's no supplementary irrigation, these are old decomposed granite soils with fantastic physical properties. Good water retention ability because the clay composition, but at the same time, and one, okay, maybe a, a talking point for a soil scientist, but that region has some of the most ancient viticultural soils on this planet. Some of the oldest soils of Europe where grapes are planted are probably on average 100 million years old. We've got soils in this country that are a billion years old, on average probably 450 plus million years, and in various degrees of decomposition. So uh, I don't want to put all the emphasis on soil. It's purely one of the elements, but it's vitally important, that particular soil for dry land farming in the Krunakloof area or the Darling area. I think the other advantage there is that as we positioned, it's probably as the crow flies five kilometers from the beach and the sea and has on good days spectacular views over Table Bay and you can even see Table Mountain in the backdrop. So it's not the oak trees of Stellenbosch, these are long, hard, dry days and very cold nights. While Elgin in particular, and to a lesser extent Darling, were both somewhat new to wine grapes when Sauvignon Blanc first took root there, Durbanville, just a short drive outside of Cape Town, has a wine-growing tradition that goes back much further. Sauvignon Blanc has very much become the signature variety of the region. If I remember correctly, it's 480 hectares, and 45% of that is Sauvignon Blanc. I'm talking of the whole of Durbanville. The biggest winery is Durbanville Hills, and of course then there's smaller ones like it's literally a family operation or a garage or something like that. Now, my name is Charles Hopkins. I'm the very proud winemaker of the Grenoble. It's a farm that dates back to 1720. And in 1893, the Graaf family, G-R-A-A-F-F, purchased the farm. And today, the fourth generation is in charge of this amazing farm on the outskirts of the city of Cape Town, overlooking the Atlantic Ocean and the city of Cape Town, seven kilometers away from the ocean, the vineyards are running between 120 and 290 meters above sea level. And one of our great positives about this farm or unique sales point is that each vine of the 75 hectares, we have a 180 degree view towards the ocean with no mountain ranges or high buildings in between. And that's makes it very special. So I made the first wines for them in 2004. And then the Williams, the current owner's dad, told me he's planning to build a cellar. And I started looking at the plans and we gelled quite well. And he made me an offer to leave grain back in the Friendship Valley and to join him. And we built a 700-ton winery. And we started very humble in 2004 with 1,800 cases. And today we produce 60,000 cases of 12. And we have 70% dependent on our own fruit and 30% that we purchase from many different regions. That's for me one of the most fascinating dimensions of winemaking is to source fruit from different areas and see how what is the influence of soil and climate on that. At the Grenoble, we have 25 hectares of our 75 is Sauvignon Blanc, different clones, different sites on the farm. We have two Sauvignon Blancs. Our Durbanville Sauvignon Blanc, or wine of origin Cape Town, I think most of you know that Durbanville is part of Cape Town. That's 15,000 cases of 12. And then we have a wine that's slightly different in style called Kutsay's Coach House. That is fruit from Darling and from a vineyard in Lutzville and some Semillon on our farm. About 10% and 15% of the final blend is wooded fermenting barrel and stay about 150 days in wood before it's blended with, let's say, 85, 83% fresh wine from a tank. So that the varieties of the two wines is adding up to 18,000 cases out of a 60,000 cases. It's an ex extremely strategically important variety for us. Durbanville is very close to Cape Town. We are the closest, and then there's 11 wineries moving backwards. And I think the one that's the longest distance away from the ocean is Dimastalai, 
if I remember correctly, the way the cry flies is about 17 kilometers away. We are on the western side of the small mountain range called Teigerberg, that means actually mountain of the tiger. And then and behind the mountain, there's an inner valley and then an outer valley. And there's wineries like Natida, Durbanville Hills, Mirandal, Diemersdal, Altijd Gedag. And as far as I know, in all of them, Sauvignon Blanc is probably strategically the most important variety. It's cool. And just to put you in picture, a metric ton of Sauvignon Blanc from this region will cost 10, 11,000 rand. And then just 50 kilometers more inland, the price on Sauvignon Blanc will be half of that per metric ton. So all to do with the proximity to the ocean and the fact that most of the vineyards are on quite an altitude. The highest point in the Durbanville region is 350 meters above sea level. But talking about Sauvignon Blanc, the vineyards range from 120, 150 meters all the way up to 300 meters. Of course, the top part of the mountain is not tongue-in-the-cheek plantable. It's too stony and too rocky. The dominant soil type in Durbanville is weathered shale. We have two types of shale. In South Africa, one is called Bockefeld shale, and then the shale in the Durbanville region is called Marmesbury shale. Marmesbury is a town about an hour from here, and this is blue weathered shale. Most of the soil types in Durbanville derive from shale. There's here and there a red pocket that must have high iron deposits over years, but the soils here is basically on top of the Teigerberg, it's misspanded quite aggressive blue-gray shale, and then halfway up the hills and the mountains, it's mixed with topsoil, and that stones that weather and roll and crushed over years. And then we call that a Glen Rosa, and towards the bottom of the hill, the ocean must have pushed clay here over millions of years underneath the mountain, deposit that, and then here about two meters down, you have this much smaller examples of this blue shale, and then with two meters down, there's a clay layer, and that we refer to as oak leaf. And Sauvignon Blanc do extremely well in oak leaf soils because the clay always ensure a higher water table. And in my opinion, if there's ever a variety that don't need to be stressed or go under tough growing conditions, it's Sauvignon Blanc because a lot of flavors will be gone. And if the vines struggle or get welted, you will definitely see the effect in the bottle. So all the soils in Durbanville, that's really not a flat portion anywhere. It's all hilly and on the side and with quite an aspect. It's all colluvial. And of course, one of the tongue-in-the-cheek shortfalls of colluvial soil, because it's quite fertile, it's not been washed out by water like alluvial. You must just watch your growth, and you will see Durbanville, one of our biggest challenges is to tame down growth and make sure that our vines are not too vigorous. Of course, we can also compare the regional styles of Sauvignon Blanc to each other. Both Charles and Neil have had occasion to source Sauvignon Blanc from a number of different spots across the Cape. Myself and a few guys, we start the vineyard plantings in Ilham with a brand called Land's End in 1994, if I remember correctly. For me, wines from there, if I must say in a blind taste, if you put a glass in front of me and it have that white pear apple flesh, that character is for me a very strong characteristic that leans a bit technically towards esters, but I know that not all that wine is made in a very cold fermentation conditions to capture and preserve the esters. That's a characteristic, but then in Elgin, for instance, you every now and then get a combination of esters and thiols, and they do produce very interesting Sauvignon Blancs. I think if you talk about the two dominant regions, not because I'm sitting here of Sauvignon Blanc in South Africa, I will say it's Durban and Dali. Constantia may be a bit under pressure due to real estate over time. But the other day, Juan Constantia produced a, a wine that won the international trophy, I think as the best white wine or something. That's amazing. And Stienberg, I know the lady at Stienberg quite well. We talk regularly. Elunda. And they also have made amazing wines in the past. Magna Carta is their wooded Sauvignon Blanc. I think it's dominated by Semillon, if I remember correctly. But great wines, great wines. So looking today, it's not uncommon to find very good Sauvignon in a region like Stellenbosch. But I'm saying parts of Stellenbosch, not all over. Stellenbosch is probably, if I can use very acceptable terms that maybe the consumer also understands, is that I think 
in most cases, fruit is picked fairly ripe, and that tends to drive aromatics and flavors more towards the tropical notes. These are wines that can also have lovely palate weights that are, I think, show themselves at their best when they're young, fresh, and fruity. If you look at an area like Constantia, and again, a lot will depend on vintage and location, you're going to get a combination of these tropical elements, but you also probably get, I'm not saying the greener notes, but you're going to find probably more what the Europeans term white fruit, the elderflower, elderberry. So those wines will be slightly tighter. They'll be a little more nervous on pellets and are going to need much more time to evolve. And that's why these wines always show of the best in the second and third year. You go to Elgin again. Elgin is, and more specifically if I'm talking about the sandstone soils, again, depending on year, you'll get years where you get wonderful tropical fruit with almost sort of black currant notes, probably subtle touches of files involved, but that's obviously a fermentation-driven thing. Then in other years again, they could have a netly component too. And some people don't like that because they see this as being maybe a bit oily, but to me that is classical elgin. And if allowed to develop, they are magnificent and they age tremendously. Now let's go over to Darling again, depending where you are in Darling, but more specifically up in those hillsides. There again, in the early days, they were loaded with pyrazines, and that winemakers made them salivate. They were so excited about it. But often the consumer didn't react well to that. So I think as people also understood their viticulture, started understanding that as a winemaker, you're not making a wine to suit your own palate. You've also got to think about who the hell is going to enjoy this. So I think by careful viticultural practices, there was a really an excellent downtoning of the influence of pyrazine. So today, Darling again is a combination, I'd say, of herbaceous notes, but within reason, there would be a lot of tropical notes. That's why I say it's a magnitude of aromatics and flavors. But those wines also develop beautifully. If you allow them two, three years, they come together and it just is a wine that I think just talks to you again. Besides attractive aromatics, it's again the mouthfeel, the texture, and these wines often when young are just, are just so tight, so nervous, they do need time. I think as growers and winemakers have come to understand what their sites can give, it also allows them to drive or let's say to stylistically design that wine that is very expressive of that particular environment. We've also got far larger commercial blends that are probably made up of multi-vineyard and even multi-district blends that are as attractive and offer tremendous value and a very good drinking. But if we're talking expressive and something that is really true to its sites, they tend to be made by people, as, as I say, who've got a very clear understanding of what they want and let's call it the stylistic design that they have in mind. As Neil is suggesting, location is a big determiner of Sauvignon Blanc quality and character, but it's not the only factor. Even before you get to the winemaking, there's the matter of clonal selection. Different clones of a grape variety will react differently to different sites. The SB11 clone, also known as the Weather Station clone, has a huge role in South African Sauvignon Blanc production, but there are a number of others available for wine growers to work with, and research continues. For a long time, that weather station clone tended to be, let's call it, the main element of what was planted. Then what developed after that is what some nurserymen and some viticulturists use the term improver clones. 
So in combination with this weather station, which was the original clone, there were improver clones that you could use. And that added just another dimension to many of the wines. I must say that in most cases, the weather station clone still tends to be, I'm not saying the best, but delivers wines that are often of the best. These vineyards are also much older than newer plantings. But today we are working predominantly with about six, seven clones. The numbers, probably the clonal material is not that important, but what really has given me a lot of hope is that I'm seeing really good results coming from 316, 317, 242, 161, 159, even clone 11. But there's many more than that. And then what influences that too is obviously the rootstock combination. These things we need to look at with objective is, are these things ultimately going to suit your particular site, winemaking style, and ultimately is it a product that the consumer is going to enjoy? We tend to be very supportive of our Sauvignon Blanc SB11 clone because it's African made, and 316 and 317s become very popular. So there is room for more R&D with regards to different clones. I'm not too sure how readily available the UC Davis clones are to the South African nurseries. That's something that needs to be researched as well. It's actually quite strange that a lot of the University of California Davis clones aren't used in South Africa. That's something that I struggle with from a viticultural perspective because I would like to rather have a huge basket to choose from from the nurseries. I think the diversity gives you the building box to work with. It gives you more options from a picking perspective and a blending perspective. And what is interesting, we have all this information in terms of rootstocks and clones, and you compare with other wine regions. When we planted Sauvignon Blanc 17 years ago, we were told a certain rootstock, which is 101.14, brings on ripening because all the information was coming from a warm region. So we planted a Bordeaux clone, 316, and another one, 317, on 101.14 rootstock. And when it came to harvesting our first grapes four years later, we noted that the grapes were actually coming in 10 days later than our other rootstocks. And then comparing notes with other viticulturists, we realized that this particular rootstock has a very shallow high branching root structure, but in being shallow, it's very sensitive to the ambient temperature at the time. And of course, in a warmer region, your soils will be much warmer. Your roots will be exposed to that warmth and therefore ripen the grapes quicker. Whereas in Elgin, with it being much cooler, the soil temperatures being colder, it actually had the adverse effect. It actually delayed ripening. So within the Sauvignon Blanc category, there was a huge learning curve over the last 20 years, 15 years ago, we were trying to make Sauvignon Blancs similar to other wine regions because we were following what other wine regions were doing because they were ahead of us in terms of the game. And we realized through trial and error that we have found a, I wouldn't say a sweet spot, but it's basically we've, we found our groove in terms of the rhythm of our vineyards and when we can pick and what we look for now. So if you have one vineyard on your farm and say it's a hectare in size you can plant one clone if you wanted to and if you only did one pick you'd only have one flavor profile being captured from that one pick what was done in the past was people would then have an early pick a middle pick and a late pick to try and capture three different flavor profiles based on the ripeness of the grapes what that tends to do is if a particular clone has been bred in a nursery for a specific characteristic, all of a sudden you might be picking it early before that characteristic is expressed, or you might be picking it late past that characteristic expression. So what we rather did is instead of only planting one or two clones, we planted, gosh, we planted six clones, SP11, which is actually a South African clone. It's called the Beerstasi clone, which is the weather station in South Africa. Then we've got clones SB161, 159, 242. 
which is more of Sound Sein style. And then the 316, 317 is more Bordeaux classic Sauvignon Blanc style. The SP242, what we found was very New Zealand tin peas, very pungent in its characteristic. And we actually, after about four years of harvesting the grapes, decided it didn't actually fit our final blends. So we actually sold those grapes to another seller, Tokara, which has a great reputation, Sauvignon Blanc. And they bought the grapes for many years. So we focus mainly on the 316, 317. And we use a bit of the SP11, the 161, the 159, we sell as well. And the reason why we use the SP11, 316, and 317 is we find that they actually blend well with a small component of Samuel. It doesn't clash, it complements each other. And that in itself, the use of Samuel in South African Sauvignon Blanc has become very popular in the last 10, 12 years, when we first started, its role was to create pellet weight because we were working with very young vineyards. So the vineyards weren't giving us structure. They weren't giving us the depth we were looking for in the pellets. So we used barrel fermented semiol from that perspective. And obviously, as the Southern Bank vineyards aged, the reliance on the semiol became less and less. So you would normally find in South Africa, you're allowed to blend up to 15% with another variety without having to call it a blend. So we would sell it as a Sauvignon Blanc, but in our first few years, there was as much as 15% barrel fermented semiol blended in. We're now down to about, depending on the vintage, it can be as little as 1.5%, 3 5%. It all depends on the characteristics of the vineyard. Your classic white Sauvignon Blanc semiol blends of Bordeaux is, is the home for, for those styles of wines. So it makes sense that the Bordeaux clones are more conducive to blending with Samuel. So in terms of our journey, that's what we found from true to our vineyards as well. We as a company always, when presenting the wine, tell people that it has a little bit of Samuel in it. And that is really just to explain the mouthfeel to the wine. Because we're going more premium, we want a little bit more structure to the, to the mid palate and to the length of the wine. Our Southern Blanc, we like to be able to take to the table as well and have the main course. And even more importantly for us, and this is where Samuel really delivers, is if you have a small percentage of Samuel in the Sauvignon Blanc, it seems to give the wine an incredible backbone. It maintains the wine in terms of longevity and aging potential. Our Samuel, funny enough, when we pick it, actually has a lower pH than our Sauvignon Blanc. We can have a pH of 3.05, 3.1. Our Sauvignon Blanc normally comes in at about 3.2, 3.25. Whereas in your warmer regions, your semiol tends to have a much higher pH than the Sauvignon Blanc. So we've found that a lot of the Elgin semiols are actually bought by winemakers over the mountain to use as a component in the Sauvignon Blanc, if they declare it or not. But we know semiol as a standalone varietal has amazing aging potential. So it just makes sense that if you're making a serious style of Sauvignon Blanc, and if you want to ensure that it has longevity in the bottle, to have a small percentage of Samuel blended in is a great insurance policy that the wine will have great aging potential. And obviously it gives it that mid-palate characteristic that just makes it more premium. The white blend category, Sauvignon Blanc lead with a little bit of Samuel, which is obviously then more than 15%, or we also do one, a white blend, but we lead with Samuel. So we have 70% Samuel, 30% Sauvignon Blanc okay. is a category on its own. The straight Sauvignon Blancs are a lot more popular in South Africa, more mainstream than the white blends. We will have in both our Kutsais and our the Gredelwe, because we grow Sauvignon on the farm. It will vary from year to year. Sauvignon is a variety that is a stepsister of Sauvignon Blanc. In this country, there's amazing Sauvignons, but they struggle to sell because the layman, or the person that just purchased a bottle of wine and enjoy it Friday evening or Wednesday evening with a nice meal, they're not sure about what is Sauvignon, where does it fit in? Is it a variety or is it a blend? That is maybe an indication of the lack of knowledge of wine. But Sauvignon is a great blender. It always has lower acidity and it always brings a bit of waxiness to the wine in this country you can blend up to 15% of another variety. But we'll play around with 6%, 8%, 12%, up to 14%. But there's great affinity between Sauvignon Blanc and Sauvignon worldwide. In Bordeaux, for instance, it plays a massive role 
even in sweet wines, Sauternes and Barsac, that is really, uh, I think, dominant by Semillon. If you look at Semillon and you look at the grapes and look at the analysis with a pure winemaker's hat on, it's a variety. I'm talking of Semillon now that's full of contrast because it's big, fleshy berries. The skins are, are very soft. You do taste the grassiness or the greenness in it when it's young. And we expose that to quite a bit of sunlight by removing a, a top layer of leaves and get diffused light on the clusters to get a bit more ripeness on our semillon. And we'll give it skin contact and take it through the normal white wine process. And then if you really look at the acid and pH, and please, this is not a lecture in chemistry, but let's say a good Sauvignon Blanc have an acid of 6.5 grams and a pH of 3.25, semillon will be like, 5.8 with a pH of 3.45, just to put you in context. And really, if you look at the potential of aging in a bottle, Sauvignon mature better or age better in a bottle than Sauvignon Blanc. It's really interesting. Sauvignon is really unsung hero in this country. And I think it plays a big role in many top Sauvignon Blancs in the world. Our wine that we produce that's wooded and have a dash of Sauvignon in it could say it's only the semillon from our farm, so it's a Western Cape wine. And we purchased the fruit from Darling and from Lutzville. That's four hours' drive from here north. And that fruit is picked and put in a cold room and brought here during the night, and it's here in the morning when we arrive. That, for me, and also certain portions of Constantia, is more the metoxyperazine areas. While actually making wine from Sauvignon Blanc grapes may seem straightforward, the winemaker still has an enormous influence on how clonal, vintage, and regional characteristics manifest in the finished wine, ideally honing what the vineyards provide into the best expression of themselves. So there are a number of different basic styles, and the tools used to articulate them have changed with time. For me, and this is not written in a book, it's just for me and the way we talk as Sauvignon Blanc producers, there's five styles. One is called esters, that's been created by cold fermentation. Sadly, these flavors are very volatile and disappear over time, and that's flavors for me like cold tea, jasmine, pear, apples. And then the second style is styles, T-H-I-O-L-E, that's basically blackcurrant, citrus, and granadella or passion fruit. The third style is metoxyperazines. It's lemon, grass, asparagus, tin peas, capsicum, green pepper flavor. So the fourth one is wooded, like you guys probably refer to as Blanc Fumé. And then the fifth style, in my opinion, is natural Sauvignon Blanc, a bit more phenolic, orangey in color, fermented on the skins, punched down, very different than the previous four that I mentioned. So for me, in Durbanville, and we as a group all send a bottle in for very fine analysis. It costs an arm and a leg for this. It's been expressed in nanograms per liter. People joke to say it's a teaspoon on a 10,000 liter tank. This is how potent this flavor is. And for us, our wines is dominated by Grenadella or the file style. Grenadella, blackcurrant and citrus flavors. Very much dominated by Citrus for me, a bit like grapefruit, that orangey grapefruit with a red-orange flesh inside, very ripe. That is for me a sort of an overall description of a Durbanville Sauvignon Blanc. Of course, in winemaking, you can manipulate the style in a way by skin contact, looking at your settling and adding a bit of soft solids back into your clear juice. And it's amazing to think that years ago, the goal was, the way I was taught, to rack your juice from the solids as clean as possible. It looks like filtered juice and then inoculate that. And now we'll do the same, but then we'll measure the clarity of the juice and then we start adding small portions, literally buckets full that one of the making students here will carry back to the tank and then add it back and uh, mix it and heat up the tank before we inoculate that. And now suddenly we ferment Sauvignon Blancs and I want to say, I think it's quite all over the industry in South Africa. It's not unique to Durban. That was not at all on years ago. You will say that wine will be coarse and, and with a, a very easy will have off odors or off flavors. But this is normal. And then, of course, what analysis that we do nowadays is extract of the Savio Blanc. And in local competitions in South Africa, we have a bank, F&B, that sponsor the top 10 Savio Blanc. We were privileged to have a few years, could say, and our regular Savio Blanc in. 
And it's proven that wines all have extracts of above 21. Now, what is a simple description of an extract for me? And I know that's very simple, and I know I'm not talking to the layman in the street. But if you can take a glass of wine and go shoops and remove all the water, everything that technically stay behind is the extract. And that's a sign of the richness and the viscosity and the longevity, in a way, of the wine. Not just that, but it gives you a very good indication. And Lee stirring, that was also years ago, not at all a winemaking style. Now, if I wish you can see here on my right-hand side is all the tanks of Sauvignon Blanc, and there's a mixer attached to the tank, and that will stir the lees after fermentation, will stir the lees for an hour, and that's a lees will get into suspension, and it will contribute in a big way to the mouthfeel. Not so much the flavor profile, but the mouthfeel and the richness of the wine. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. I learned so much. I have 34 years of experience, and each year is just wow. It's just a new thing that I learned. And what's so fascinating, of course, each person has mentors, but the people I learn it from is younger winemakers, not necessarily older experienced winemakers. Young guys that return from France or return from New Zealand, and some of them work here. And we have a whole Sauvignon Blanc study group where we get together a group of around 12 winemakers. I think one great thing, South African winemakers, there's great camaraderie between us, and we want to really improve wine. We are very keen to learn from one another and share with one another. Sauvignon Blanc is number one in terms of volume and popularity in the country. The category itself, I think, has matured. I think everybody is comfortable in how to produce the style of Sauvignon Blanc that they need for the market. Sauvignon Blanc is a real solid wine to have in your portfolio. The trials and errors, all those teething problems from 20, 25 years ago are behind us. So there's a lot of consistency in our offerings these days, which makes it a great varietal to work with. And most wine regions have found their niche in terms of what works best for its region, be it Elam, Himonada, Sauvignon Blanc, Elgin Sauvignon Blanc, Constantia, Durbanville. So we have, from the different wine regions, definite Sauvignon Blanc personalities or characteristics coming out. We realized from an Elgin perspective, there's no point trying to make a Sauvignon Blanc similar to a different wine region. We had to find our true expression, how terroir benefits Sauvignon Blanc. And I think as a collective group, we've managed that. It's a variety that provides you with a big challenge each year. It's so much dependent on the terroir conditions of climatic conditions. I can take you back in my 15 years at the Grenel. We had great vintages. One of the greatest vintages was 2007. It was actually my second vintage year. The first two vintages I made in the Grainback Cellar as a winemaking service. And then probably one of the worst vintages, 2008, and then 9 and 10. 10 had this very high acidity, and then two average ones, 11 and 12. And then uneven vintages, and there's no logic behind that. 13, 15, 17, and 19 was all exceptional Sauvignon Blanc years. But now 20, uh, could say we deliberately keep back Kutsay's a year in the bottle and then start selling it. On the weekend, I enjoy a bottle of Kutsay's 2020, and the wine is superb. It's got high levels of metoxyperazines, a wonderful firm acidity, and it's just rolling flavor after flavor in your mouth. It's really great. I wish I can share it with you now. <laughs> As usual, we like to turn to a North American sommelier to get a different perspective on these wines. And today I'm talking to Jared Fisher. Jared is the wine director at Hutong in New York City. And Jared, you went down to South Africa about 10 years ago, right? Yeah, I did. It was really thermal experience. Before I had gone down, I basically knew about things from essentially just an academic perspective, the kind of things that some of the learn about for exams and competitions, the learning WOs and such. But it was a really good experience. There were just two of us on the trip and we got to see many wineries. Yeah. Obviously, there's so many different wines we could talk about, but today we're focusing on Sauvignon Blanc. Was that a variety that you associated with South Africa at the time? To some extent, yes, as far as you look at like pie charts and see what percentage of sales it represents. But when I went down there, what I found is that every single winery, everyone produces Sauvignon Blanc, and the majority of them fall into a fairly narrow range of two different styles, either a little bit more leaning towards New Zealand or a little bit trying for a, a leaner, grassier style. There were a few standouts, but there were definitely some really exceptional ones that I remember. 
am. I got, actually got to taste it in association with this podcast. Oh, great. Uh, since then, so it's been 10 years. Have you uh, been able to keep track of the category? Have you seen some of those wines coming over here into the market? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, for a while, poured the, uh, the Clan Constancia, not the Metis that uh, we're talking about here, but their regular Sauvignon Blanc by the class. And I noticed they even have a, a premier cuvee level Sauvignon Blanc, which is just a tiny bit more expensive. Uh, you know, when I looked into that, I, that, that became interesting to me. But I don't see a lot of them. Who else do I like? Yeah, I've worked with a few others since I've been here. I mostly uh, see them because I like them. Yeah, you're right. The portfolio at Klein Constantia, with the past few years, they've really started focusing on doing some single block expressions. So you have the pair to block and a couple other numbered blocks that they're doing as higher end tiers over the estate wine. But you tasted one for this, and that's a kind of a unique one where they're working together with Pascal Jolivet called the Metis. What did you think of this one? I thought that it was definitely identifiable as the client Constancia Sauvignon Blanc. And what I think the Pascal Jolivet touch brought to it was a greater expression of minerality. So we've got two wines in this podcast that were fairly geographically close to each other. And I think that the, the Fergalagen, for example, will do intense flinty minerality. And I think to, to some extent that, that expressed itself in the Metis as well. Uh, and I would imagine that's what uh, Pascal Jolivet's uh, touch brought to the wine. Mm-hmm. Obviously, so Metis meaning mixed, it was supposed to be this uh, French-South African hybrid as far as the approach goes. And you mentioned the second wine that you tasted, the Fairhaven. So this isn't very far away. Technically, you're moving from Constantia to Stellenbosch, so in principle from a cooler climate area to a warmer area. But Fairhaven is really, in technical terms, probably actually closer to False Bay. It's only about a mile from the bay. How is this wine showing? That wine I thought was phenomenal. When I tasted this, I thought that... It had a degree of expression of ethereal qualities, which is highly uncommon. I thought that the expression of minerality was unique. I thought it had some really well-integrated floral qualities and herbaceous qualities that I thought just mingled very well and, and were unique and interesting. And it reminded me uh, of, of my vision of the, the Cape Floral Kingdom. If you see a picture that captures it well and you think of the wide variety of, of flowers that are captured in the same image and then you having been there think of the smell associated with that i think that this wine did a little bit of that for me so that fine bows herbal aromatics that sort of thing yes yeah fantastic now the third wine we actually continue in the same direction but again we're going from a warmer area nominally at least to the coolest climate area in south africa to elgin which has really become associated with sylvian blanc so this is the paul kluver how is this showing Intuitively, I would say that when you talk about the coolness of the region and my recollection of the region, which is definitely very high elevation, and to me, I remember it seeming, I know that it's not geologically a caldera, but it seems like a caldera, and it, it, to me, it seemed the most tropical, especially as I let it warm up. It really was the most fruit forward in that very vibrant sense, and, and I think very different from the other two. Okay. Yeah, I think they have the possibility in Elgin often to leave a lot of hang time, so they can really develop a lot more tropicality in the flavors sometimes. I was thinking just in terms of flavor profile, it's very much stylistically in line, I think, with this Riesling and this Pinot Noir as well. They're very much styles that appeal to a drinker of elegant New World wines. Mm-hmm. You said you've used South African Sauvignon Blancs by the glass before. Do you think that's something that would come back around on your list on occasion? Definitely, depending on the type of market that I'm serving. Right now, it's easier for me to serve Sancerre and get people what they want because I have a great Sancerre that I like. Uh, and people are willing to pay what it costs. But if I were working in a more casual restaurant, I would definitely use those again. And the Fairglade Nifus in the market, I would put as a bubble on the list. I hope you enjoyed this look at South African Sauvignon Blanc. You can find more resources and links to the producers we talked to at our website, wosa.us. As you heard, there are several other regions making characterful Sauvignon Blancs, and you can explore a few of them elsewhere in our podcast. In our previous episode, we looked at Elgin in depth, and episodes 8 and 14 look at Constantia and the Agullis Triangle, respectively. All three are home to exceptional examples of South African Sauvignon Blanc. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. In our next episode, we're going to look at something important to all South African winemaking, regardless of region, grape, or wine style, how the wine industry treats the land. 
South Africa's sustainability system is one of the most developed in the world of wine, with 95% of the industry's vineyards and producers certified. We'll look at that program, as well as conservation efforts, organic and biodynamic practices, and other ways the industry is taking care of the environment that allows their vines to thrive. 